I'm Esther Armar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women of color media panel. I'm coming to you live from NPR in Washington, D.C., Our contributors are on the line, and we are on air nationally across the United States and internationally in Ghana and Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. Today on The Spin, our main conversation. Is it culture or is it abuse? The Egyptian MP in hot water for calling on Egyptian women to suck it up, keep enduring female genital mutilation because of Egyptian men's sexual appetites. All in the name of culture. Hot Topic 1, Georgetown University, Slavery and Scholarship. And Hot Topic 2, the medical pioneer on a personal mission, a black woman physicist and her laser cancer treatment. All of that coming up. Our contributors this week are Beverly Namborzo and Dr. Christina Greer. Beverly Namborzo is a Ugandan poet and a literary activist. Beverly's latest published book of poetry is called Dress Me in Disobedience. And Beverly was longlisted for the 2013 Short Story Day Africa Award. She's founder of the Babishai Niwe Poetry Foundation and the mother of two beautiful girls. Beverly joins us from Uganda's capital city, Kampala. Dr. Christina Greer is an associate professor of political science at Fordham University. Dr. Greer is author of the critically acclaimed Black Ethnics, Race, Immigration, and the Pursuit of the American Dream. Dr. Greer joins us from New York. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Hey, Esther. It was great to be with you. Thank you very much, Esther. Hello, Christina. Hi, Beverly. Let's start with our main event conversation. Is it culture or is it just abuse? Culture, evolving, dynamic, powerful. Abuse? None of those. Do we conflate the two? And if so, why? In Egypt, an MP made global headlines when he rejected tougher penalties against those caught practicing female genital mutilation after a teenage girl died. The MP said that Egypt's culture meant women should stand by their men and endure FGM, as it's known, because half of all Egyptian men are impotent and Egyptian women had strong sexual appetites. So female genital mutilation, FGM, was necessary to control women's sexual libido and cater to Egyptian men's impotence. Here's Dr. Magdi Khalid of the United Nations Population Fund. He's a father who's part of the movement to end FGM in Egypt, or cutting, as it's also called. I see myself as a father and taking my daughter to be cut. Uh, I really thought about it and I got tears in my eyes. This is really a tragedy that needs to stop and we will not give up. We will keep saying this. We will keep working with the community. We will keep working on the brains to remove the old traditions. Egypt has the highest number of women and girls who have undergone FGM, according to a 2013 report from UNICEF. And FGM has deep cultural roots and is associated with girls' chastity and purity. It occurs across African countries, parts of Asia and the Middle East. It occurs in the West too, in parts of Europe, like Germany and in the United States. Listen as Bintu, a Gambian woman now living in Germany, explains what happened when she was cut and Bintu was 10 years old when it happened. We were 30 girls that went, but we came out less, less than 30. Three girls were dead. According to our tradition, they told us that those girls were eaten by the crocodile. They caught my clitoris. Then after cutting that, 
they you know tomato tomato and pasta. Mm -hmm. They use the tomato and pasta to cover it. This tomato paste have to mix with the blood. So that is how they call the sealing of the virginity. My body is lacking something very important. Yeah, something really important. The most important part of my body has been removed. And that is something that can never be brought alive there. Yeah. It's like killing somebody and the person can never be brought alive here. Yeah. A dead person is always a dead person. Is it culture? Or is it abuse? Let's go from Egypt to Ghana. In Ghana, there are widowhood rights. They are described as traditional, as cultural, and they include women being stripped naked at their husband's funerals, being forced to bathe naked in public, having their hair shaved against their will, and having ropes put around their necks. They even include forcing widows to drink concoctions to prove they are innocent if their husbands died in what might be considered questionable circumstances and forcing widows to marry someone in their husband's family after their husband has been laid to rest. Now, there's also a movement in Ghana, the Widows Network, to end these practices. And there's resistance arguing that these practices are quote-unquote traditional. Here's Akwama Mama Zimbi of the Zimbi Foundation calling for widows' rights and a change in what is described as tradition. If you're my husband, we love each other. Mm. The family know that we've been living for years. And... That evening we have beautiful dinner. You went to bed the next morning. I got up at 4 a.m. to go and get the breakfast, see that the kids go to school. As 5 days I'm waking up, you're not waking up. I keep screaming, what is happening to Kojo? They come and God forbid, you can't wake up. And they accuse me of me killing you, that I'm a witch. You understand what they go through? Tradition, they say. Tradition, they say. Mm -hmm. We need to renew our tradition. Let's go from Ghana to South Africa. In May 2015, a white South African judge hit the headlines when she said that rape was part of black South African men's culture. Judge Mabel Jansen's comments were made in a private Facebook thread that was made public by South African anti-racism campaigner and anti-rape activist Gillian Shute. She said that gang rape was a, quote, pleasurable pastime, unquote, for black South African men, and that she did not know of a single black South African woman who had not been raped by age 12. So here's one black South African woman's response to Judge Mabel Jansen's comments. To say that she's still to see a 12-year-old woman who has not been raped, and um, that is very insulting to us as women, and I'm sitting here today as a woman, I feel very insulted and disrespected. I'm 43 years old, I haven't been raped. And does that make me an African? I don't think so. Of course, comments about rape being part of black South African men's culture are abhorrent and racist. Rape culture? is real, global, and devastating. In the United States, during enslavement, as in South Africa during apartheid, racism meant ascribing characteristics to black people as part of the lie of black inferiority and white superiority. The legacy of both continues to this very day. So let's talk culture versus abuse. Beverly Nambozo, let me start with you, your thoughts. It's such a difficult topic. I come from Uganda, and in eastern Uganda, a district called Kapchorwa, they do practice female genital mutilation. For a couple of years, I worked in an organization that was working against the practice. And this is what we came across every time. When we would go to the villagers or speak through the elders, they would say, the surgeons would say, our only source of income is through the practice of what they call surgery, which meant cutting these women. When you speak to the elderly women, they say if they had not undergone female genital mutilation as children, 
they would have been ostracized from the society. There is a woman MP who has done so much work against it, but she's not accepted as full member of the village. I've been to Kaptorwa, I've been to Egypt as well, and it's a horrific practice. I'll say that without a doubt, it's horrific. It has so many emotional repercussions and, of course, physical. But culture is so strongly rooted, it's, it's almost tangible. It's something impossible to tear away from. If people feel that their identity is being torn away, they are willing to undergo anything, even at the risk of mere death. And that's the sad reality. And, and so it's so difficult to come across. So personally, I would say no to FGM because of the repercussions. I mean, I've read stories, I've read poems even of children when they're grown up talking about the pain. And I've heard stories of women talking about how difficult it is even enjoy sexual activity because of what they went through, how childbearing is so difficult because of that. But culture is, it's almost like tearing an invisible thread. It's almost like trying to separate someone's blood. And, and that's the back that we're up against. Dr. Christina Greer? Well, I mean, you know, Esther, it's so difficult because I hear what Beverly's saying. I mean, Beverly created what I think is a really complex argument, which is on the one hand, you know, I don't want to be the Westerner coming in, shaking my finger about something that I don't uh, know about, right, on on the ground and sort of women's lived experiences as far as being in their own communities. But as an outsider, obviously, I I, I think the practice is, is quite horrific. I, I wanted to get back, though, to one of the points you were saying about the South Africa story, where we have a judge, actually. We know rape culture is... Um, is rampant, not just on the continent, but across um, Europe, obviously in America as well. Um, but for her to sort of be in that position of power and come with these preconceived stereotypes of what essentially black men and black women are, I think is incredibly dangerous. Um, and I think the calls for her to be removed are not only warranted, but this needs to be actually, and this is the beauty of your show, but this needs to be a much larger story because we see this in America with judges coming to the bench with these notions of who black people are, either as savages or criminals or not worthy of humanity or not knowing how to treat members of their own community and society. And essentially what she thought was a private email exchange was incredibly exposing to how she really sees um, many of the, the defendants who probably come before her. It's so powerful what you're both saying, because I think about two things. One is the individual practice of FGM and the arguments about why it's problematic. And my argument is always that the challenge with this thing that we call culture as it relates to something like FGM is the fact that it is specifically done to women and women only. No one is talking about doing anything with men's um, genitalia in order to have a conversation about chastity. So for me, the issue often is about what is described as culture is really violence being done specifically to women's bodies. And then to expand it and think about South Africa, you're talking about the cancer of racism manifesting in a position of power where you have 
on the one hand, so much damaging evidence about, about how hard it is to actually put rape through the court system, through the judicial system and get any kind of conviction because of the way victims of rape are re-traumatized by the legal process. And on the other, you have a white woman judge who is um, using that power, who knows, who may be using that power and manifesting those personal beliefs when those cases, as rare as they are, come to court. And so the reality and the, the, the challenge of needing to fight rape culture and the devastation that it causes, the challenge and the need to fight against something like female genital mutilation, the thing that it causes, becomes conflated with ascribing those things to culture. We know the cancer of racism even when we think about eugenics, is the idea of saying that something is um, cultural rather than practice. Because that's the thing about culture. It's the paralyzing of debate, the stifling of critique, the fact that it silences any interrogation of the idea. And that silencing protects what can be deviant or criminal and dangerous, and especially when it, when it comes to women. So although I began and used the Egypt um FGM story, it was really an example to look at the bigger issue. I would say, you know, I was I just traveled to DC from Ghana, where, for example, with pastors, we do the same thing that we do with culture. We um, criminal, often sexually deviant behavior, masquerading as the Holy Spirit, allows pastors to perform essentially sexual assault on, on girls. And it's so often men's actions towards women's bodies, um, abusive and or violent, being then wrapped in this term that is um, culture. But as you say, um, Beverly, culture is this incredibly powerful thing that makes interrogation particularly challenging. And then the real um, issues of how the outside um, outsiders interrogate or view culture makes it even harder because people become protective of what is actually, in this case, genuinely questionable, right? And become protective without even understanding why, without questioning why, because many of these structures built around culture, which may have started with a genuine good reason, are built definitely to subdue women, and that's without doubt. Because you have, for example, even slavery, uh, the university um, reparation. I mean, that was a culture, a Catholic university, strongly Catholic, which more or less built a structure around this religion to abuse a certain race and condone it for so many years. And even though... Um, one of the leaders was against it. He said, oh my goodness, selling all these slaves is like selling our souls. He didn't see anything wrong in actually owning a slave. So the culture around this religion condoned it. And all these cultures are built to subdue women and subdue particular races. I think even structures like the court system were built specifically to create power imbalances. I don't know how many stories I've heard of girls and young children who feel they are being re-victimized or feel that they're going through the rape ordeal again because they're told it was their fault because of the particular way they were dressed. These, these cultures, uh, the structures of these cultures are not built to protect women, really, or protect uh, younger children. 
And so they're always meant to be subdued. And then children and women are raised to behave in a certain way because society deems them so. Grow up and be well-behaved because that is your place in society. Don't grow up and question. Your place is to be well-behaved and to please the other, to please the older people, to please the man. Not to protect yourself or to be empowered or to live the life you wish. And so many women who are in these structures of um, churches and other religious structures are faced with questions of, what do I do? Am I being obedient to this religion, which I, I do love for particular reasons? I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, I'm, I'm, I'm torn between behaving like an empowered woman who went to school, studied, and can create change, and then this religion that's telling me to behave in a particular way because that's how it's always been, and that's what the good book says. And so when we are made to be in a position that we don't question, that, again, is another form of patriarchy and slavery. Slavery doesn't want to question. It wants to own you. It's just coming in different forms, and, and, and that's a problem. And so you have women who are speaking out who are considered too much or, or too, what can I say, uh, you're too much for them. You're not supposed to be like that. Why are you outspoken? Your place is here. Don't go on the stage. You're not supposed to speak out. And that's not the truth at all. And so it, it, it goes on and on. And much as there is a lot of progress, I mean, feminism and other practices have created strides. The fact is, sometimes I think the situation is more polarized than ever. Um, I've experienced it. I've witnessed it. And it hasn't changed even here in Kampala at all. I mean, there are very many women MPs, there are many women representing Uganda all over the world. But the truth is, in come back to the tiny unit, which is called a home, which is called an office, a workplace, women always have a particular place where they should belong. And that cultural society has picked them there. Last word to you, Christina Greer. You know, I just think that <laughs> just to zoom out, you know, 30,000 feet just a little bit, I really wish we could have more of these conversations across countries and across differing cultures just to see where so many of the similarities lie um, because there are so many different ways that, you know, in the West, especially in, you know, sort of upper middle class, middle class, even working class societies in the United States, um, within, say, even black communities, um, so many of the things that Beverly talked about are, are true, um, and this teaching of girlness and this teaching of how we are to present ourselves in a very heteronormative space, which also doesn't even leave room for other questions of gender and sexuality and power. And the thing that I would just close with as well is that it's it's cult, it's abuse in the name of culture, which hurts boys, which hurts girls and boys and women and men ultimately. Um, I truly believe that what is good for women is always great for everybody because of the nature of the way patriarchy functions to um, subdue women and subjugate them first and foremost in all these very specific ways. And I think about a trip that I made to um, Somaliland and Hargeisa where they did the 10th, in, sorry, the 9th International Book Fair and met Somaliland's former first lady, Edna Adnan, a phenomenal woman and a really powerful um, gender activist in Somaliland. And she showed me the instruments that were used to perform um, FGM in Somaliland 
and it, they are thorns. I mean, they are thorns from an acacia tree. You have never seen such a violent looking instrument. I mean, literally looking at it, my eyes started to tear and I just started to wince. Um, and then thinking about the nature of inflicting that kind of pain and being invited to endure that on the basis of culture is horrific for women. It's also really bad for men to learn that abuse should be tolerated in the in the name of culture because that abuse then expands and leads to other abuses and it grows and grows and grows and it it creates culture and reimagines culture as an intimate relationship of violence for women in particular that can be inflicted by men with no consequence so it has far-reaching damage right across the board. And part of the challenge, I think, is we don't, as you say, Christina, have these much broader conversations that engage people from different spaces and perspectives and experiences and then allow us to listen to those experiences and why they inform the resistance, why they inform growing movements and why those movements become more and more and more powerful. Culture and abuse, never the same thing. Protect culture always, which is powerful and beautiful and dynamic and evolving, but eliminate abuse surely and really learn to recognize the difference between the two. Doing it for the culture. That was our main event discussion. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly all-women-of-colour media panel. I'm your host, Esther Armour. Our contributors this week are Beverly Nambozo and Dr. Christina Greer. The Spin is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in NPR studios in Washington, D.C. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, South Carolina, Texas, Georgia, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa, in Ghana on Star FM 103.5, and in Lagos on WFM 91.7. And we are online via podcast. Hot topic time. Let's start with Georgetown University, slavery and scholarship. Georgetown University will offer the descendants of nearly 300 slaves preferential treatment in its admissions process. Here's Georgetown President John DeGoya. This community participated in the institution of slavery. This original evil that shaped the early years of the Republic was present here. And we have been able to hide from this truth, bury this truth, ignore and deny this truth. We will offer a mass of reconciliation in which we will seek forgiveness for our participation in the institution of slavery and specifically for the sale of 272 children, women and men. In 1838, the school sold 272 slaves who were working on plantations in Southern Maryland to pay down its debts. Georgetown will also create a memorial and rename two buildings with the university president's names who oversaw the 1838 sale. Now, the school says it will give the descendants of those slaves, quote, the same consideration we give members of the Georgetown community, unquote, when they apply. That means that the applicants will, quote, receive an extra look, unquote, and that their relationship to the university will be considered. Relationship. 
enslavement relationship. Hmm, dodgy that. The move made headlines, but some said it was too little and it was done without the engagement of those very descendants. Here's Joe Stewart, one of the descendants of those 272 enslaved Africans. Our attitude is that all of this evolved from the pain and suffering of the 272 people we talked about, and we are those faces. And our attitude is nothing about us without us. Other descendants of those 272 enslaved Africans spoke about their lack of inclusion in Georgetown's decision. Here's Sandra Green-Thomas, another of those direct descendants, speaking to the media about her disappointment that scholarships were not just included, but were the launch place for this necessary reparations. I was disappointed by the report, very disappointed that they didn't go as far as scholarships. I thought that scholarships to Georgetown was the starting point from which we were going to build. Um, And they didn't provide us with that. But also, I think that Georgetown did themselves and us a great disservice by not including descendants in their decision-making process. We attempted individually and separately you know, and, and small groups to try to interface with them, to offer our assistance. To say, hey, this, to, this is what would work for yes, us. No, to have a dialogue. To have a dialogue. And they were not receptive to it. A collection of Georgetown professors, students, alumni and genealogists is now trying to find out what exactly happened to those 272 men, women and children. All of America's Ivy League institutions, except Cornell, have ties to the slave trade. More than a dozen, including Brown, Columbia, Harvard, and the University of Virginia, have publicly recognized their ties to slavery and the slave trade. But, historians say, the 1838 slave sale organized by the Jesuits who founded and ran Georgetown stands out for its sheer size. So let's talk slavery and scholarship. Dr. Christina Greer, let me start with you, your thoughts. I have complicated feelings towards reparations only because I fear that in many of these conversations, once money has been given to someone, uh, people who consistently benefit from white privilege uh, will definitely feel as though, you know, a debt has been paid and so the, the, the playing field has been leveled, which we know is not the case. With the, the case of Georgetown, I think it's interesting because I've read several articles about it and I've listened to the various speeches and um, there's a slight lack of consistency in the language. Uh, And so on the one hand, they say that descendants of the 272 slaves will be given uh, a special look. On the other hand, they say that um, they'll be given somewhat of a preference, which is different because it can go deeper than just a special look. On another instance, they say that the special look will essentially look like um, if your father or your, you know, grandmother or grandfather went to Georgetown, uh, it'll look like that. That's That's one way to do it. I think what would be more effective for me is like a real substantive scholarship or a series of scholarships for students, plural, of black American descent, but also a real commitment to hire black faculty and really make the the university a much more robust place. This sort of uh, independent analysis of who they think will they'll give an extra look. I mean, what does that mean? Um, how do we measure that? How do we hold them accountable um, if they say, well, I gave Esther's application an extra look, and, well, she wasn't up to snuff. Well, she might not be up to snuff because of historical factors that have prevented her from, uh, from succeeding, or she may be, and that's 
you know, um, that's their discretion. And so I find that lack of transparency really troubling. I also just don't think that that's a long-term sustainable strategy. I'd much rather see them put some of the money that they've benefited from directly back into even the surrounding community that Georgetown has been able um, to, to essentially take over, right? I mean, we know that D.C. is becoming less and less of a chocolate city every day. Um, if Georgetown really has a commitment to sort of paying back uh, their debt, they can also do it in a very 21st century way and make sure that the black people in D.C. actually have an opportunity to even walk on that campus. And we know that there is a, a very large disconnect between the number of students from D.C. public schools who actually ever even make it uh, to Georgetown, let alone visit the campus one time. So I think I'll pause there and, and see what you and Beverly have to say. But I, I do think that it's a first step, but by no means am I satisfied with the end result. Beverly Nambozo, your thoughts? That was another very tough one to read and to analyze. One, I'd like to say that it's good that they recognize the role that Georgetown University played in slavery and that there's also a genome mapping so people can find out who their ancestors were and how they suffered as slaves and can trace their roots back. However, what I didn't get from all of this was why. Why exactly are they doing this? Because it did mention that last year students caused uh, a bit of a riot at the university when students demanded for reparations or some form of, of answer, response to, to what happened in 1838. But what I don't understand is why exactly is the university administration doing it? Is it because of the student strike last year? Is it because they've come to realization? And if they did, how did they come to it without having an important dialogue with the descendants, some of whom they know? So that's what I didn't understand. And when I don't understand why something is done, I don't know about its longevity. Because this is a very important part of world history. It's very important to African Americans. It's important to Africans as well. And it's important for the institution of Georgetown. And if they haven't identified or explained why, then I'm not sure its importance can be celebrated enough and that a lot is being swept under the rug. Because uh, this is, we're speaking of decades and decades and decades of, of people's lives that were changed in very cruel ways. So if they're deciding to have reparations without engaging in dialogue with their descendants, what is it really for? So that's what I didn't really understand. And it's a very sensitive area because how many rep- when do you say we have done enough now? We have given scholarships or we have um, given special treatment to, what, 500 descendants? I think that's enough. Now let's go on. Life is going to continue as normal. How? When this happened for two centuries, we can say or more. When is enough enough? And... Um, what are the real objectives? When will those objectives be realized? When will they say, now we've reached our objectives, we can stop here? And who is it for? You know, So there are just so many unanswered questions for me. I find um, the decision incredibly problematic. Um, I think the idea that Georgetown would, could quote-unquote give, give a special look to the descendants of enslaved Africans applying give a special look, which means they're conflating enslavement with 
students who happen to have a relationship with the university. Enslavement is not a relationship. It is criminal. It is a criminal act. It's a crime against humanity. And it has been articulated as such by the United Nations, specifically as a body. And so I think the the idea that a decision would be made without any engagement of the actual direct descendants, despite their attempts to actually engage Georgetown, um, President the Georgetown Board, in looking at what to be what should be done, I think is deeply telling. I think it's about what is the minimum we can do and get away with while still claiming an acknowledgement. So there is what I call symbolic acknowledgement minus substantive action. So to hear the Georgetown president stand up on a mic and say this was a thing that was done, to name these two, well, to say that there were 272 men, women and children, to actually say and admit that is one thing. To have the buildings named after Um, some of those who went through that horror is another thing. But that does not even begin to be, quote unquote, enough. I don't even think that represents a real acknowledgement because it's the acts of the enslavement and then the legacy of the trauma as a result of the act and how many generations that went through. And that point that you make, Christina, is like, how do you define a special look? Okay, instead of maybe just putting it to one side, I looked at it. And then I put it to one side. How on earth does that become the notion of reparations, if that's what you're going to call it? I also have a complicated relationship with reparations. But I believe in the language of what Georgetown is claiming that it wants to do, this is actually quite appalling. I think it's it's an insult to the descendants of those enslaved Africans. I think it's an insult to claim that anybody who had a quote-unquote relationship with the university should now be put on a par with enslavement. I don't think that goes in any way far enough to specifically identify the horror that was enslavement. And I think it's the way white supremacy and white privilege works. If you push really hard, so Beverly talked about the protests last year, not just in Georgetown, there have been protests all across campuses where students have been talking specifically about ways in which um, enslavement and the slave trade, there are markers all around them and the way that impacts them in the, in the business of going about to further their education. Um, and so the idea that that would in any way be enough, I think is really, really problematic. I also take issue with the idea that it's a first step. For me, I think the university thinks we've admitted it, we've acknowledged it, We've put up a building to name it and we've taken action to do something about it. As far as we're concerned, we're done. And so for me, I absolutely would be happy to see additional protest and resistance and pushing for them to, once this amazing work of tracing the genealogy and naming all the descendants and then saying, I think a scholarship is the least of it, but certainly a scholarship, certainly a scholarship. Um, And I'm suspicious about that Symbolic act minus substantive action should always, for me, be looked at with suspicion. Dr. Christina Greer, you talked about having a complicated relationship to um, reparations and you think that it's a, it's, it's a start on some um, level. I wonder how you would respond if there were further protests and a push for something that was much bigger than what we've seen already. Yeah, I mean, I just think that, you know, as it stands now, it's, it's just cheap and easy. Right, and I think that unfortunately, so many conversations around reparations have to do with a financial settlement 
that essentially tries to make a 500-year problem go away. But we're not just talking about the violence and the murder and the the attempts at genocide from 500 years ago. We're also talking about the systemic and institutional ways in which racism is played out and continues to play out today. So we're we're sort of trying to combat a problem from a really long time ago, but there are all these other issues that have been added on top, say housing segregation, you know, job demotions, the fact that, you know, when FDR put together the New Deal, he purposely had to exclude black women in order to make the compromise go through, you know, and sort of black domestics. So all of these ways in which black people have been shut out of equality in this country, um, especially economic equality due to racist and racialized systems, it worries me because this is just a way to say, okay, so we'll look at, you know, a few black students. But to be quite honest, there's so many families that aren't even in the college the pipeline, if you will, um, because they never had an opportunity to even entertain that type of thought. Um, and I, I just don't see how, you know, the the special glance will ever even come close, as you said, to really – making up for, for what actually happened. I mean, I think some buildings and some acknowledgments are definitely necessary, but those are, you know, for an institution like Georgetown, those are easy fixes. There is no conversation about how are we going to change structural racism at this university and make it a, a, a focal point of moving forward and helping the city and other universities, peer institutions, think about dismantling structural racism and institutional racism as well. That never came up. So buying a quick building and, you know, glancing at some applications is a quick fix to a really, really long and complicated problem that takes more than than just someone giving a speech um, and feeling good about himself. And I like your, your point about um, looking at the structural inequities that would even lead you to not be able to apply to Georgetown in the first place and without addressing and looking at those specifically because this idea that we want to always make enslavement and its legacy an individual endeavor as opposed to an institutional reality and that that structural systemic violence had extraordinary um, ripple effects and consequences that touched all these other structures and spaces. Um, and we continue to live them to this very day. But I also think about, we're talking about legacy and my work, which is around emotional justice, that looks at the, the legacy of untreated trauma, what I call the ways in which the traumas manifest today and how we move through the world and requiring some kind of process and practice to address that in order to even give students the opportunity to be at Georgetown if that's where they wanted to go um, or deal with the quote-unquote fixing of the problem. But the idea that a named building represents the end of the conversation, I think, is symptomatic of of white America's response to dealing with enslavement as a horror that built America's economy and which continues to profit and America's economy continues to profit from that. And so let's just do the least that we can with as few people as possible and make a big statement about that 
And that is as much as we have done. But, you know, Frederick Douglass said power can seize nothing without a demand for a reason. And I think the demand has to escalate. Otherwise, how does it make any real kind of change? How does it make a change? It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make any sense to me. Slavery and scholarship. Georgetown University, as Christina said, cheap and easy and definitely by no stretch of the imagination enough. Not at all. Let's go to Hot Topic 2. Meet Dr. Hadia Nicole Green. Dr. Green is one of fewer than 100 black female physicists in the United States. And this Morehouse doctor is the recent winner of a $1.1 million grant to further develop a laser treatment with little to no side effects to treat cancer. It's officially called technology that uses laser-activated nanoparticles to treat cancer. And Dr. Green explained that she's a pioneer on a personal mission. And she explained that to journalist Roland Martin. Just take a listen. My aunt who raised me from age four, right after I graduated from undergrad at Alabama a University, she announced that she had woman's cancer, so either cervical or ovarian. And she said that she would rather die than experience the side effects of chemotherapy and radiation. I took care of her the last three months of her life. Three months after she passed, my uncle who raised me from age four was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. He said that he would go through the treatments. His doctors gave him three months to live. I nursed him back and he lived another 10 years. Wow. But I watched him and took care of him as he went through chemotherapy and radiation. I watched him lose 150 pounds, all of his hair, his eyelashes, his eyebrows. I watched his fingernails turn black. And I saw how his skin went from being a beautiful chocolate to looking like it had been burnt in an oven or barbecued. It was horrific. I got to experience firsthand the horrors of cancer and the horrors of cancer treatment. And I said, there has to be a better way. Dr. Green said that there simply had to be a more effective way for cancer treatment to simply attack the tumor and the cancerous cells, but not destroy a whole person. If we can see from a satellite in outer space, if a dime on the ground is face up or face down, we should be able to do a better job pinpointing the tumor and treating just the tumor and not the whole person. Why not? Why not indeed? Dr. Green would become the first to work out how to deliver nanoparticles into cancer cells exclusively so that a laser could be used to remove them and then successfully carry out her treatment on living animals. And so now, of course, she's been awarded a million dollars to develop this technology. And in America, according to the National Cancer Institute, there are 1.7 million cases of cancer every single year. So let's talk pioneers and personal missions. Beverly Nambozo, let me start with you. Many years ago, two decades ago in Kampala, it was devastating when HIV and AIDS hit because there was no cure, there was no sensitization. But a lot of that has changed with awareness. But now the story is cancer, and it's horrific because it's hitting us in places we're unaware of. Many of the cases come at a very advanced stage, and our cancer institute come down under patients for cancer, you fundraise for them to go to India for treatment for a transplant, but their condition is so severe that often they don't make it. And one incident was last year, a young gentleman called Kasirivo, people had fundraised, but he didn't make it to India. And so to find that there's a lady who has pioneered something great, first of all, that it's a lady, I won't, you know, let's not hide that fact, it's amazing that it's a lady. I think pioneering comes in many steps. First of all, we should acknowledge that it's 
groundbreaking and that this this innovation has the potential to solve a global crisis because for me cancer is a global health crisis and so that should be recognized even before the fact that it's a woman and the fact that it is a woman makes us realize that um, well we shouldn't celebrate it as a woman saying that oh, women are less than men therefore but she's a full person a full person who has who has studied who has done research and who has who has brought this innovation to light you know which could potentially again save a global health crisis i think all that should be recognized i think that we should continue to support her i know that in the interview she said that she needs 30 million dollars if i'm correct and i think that this money should be given as soon as yesterday people should recognize it's more important than funding wars in Syria and funding wars in Lebanon. And because I'm sure if there was a, a political crisis and troops were being sent to a country, that money would be given in an instant. People should recognize that solving, you know, this cancer issue should even be more important and that funding should be given within an instant so that this research can be carried out effectively. Dr. Christina Greer. What I thought what really jumped out at me uh, for that particular story was um, that she went to HBCUs. Mm. And I, I I also just thought that, uh, as Beverly said, I mean, this this research has the, the ability to really transform the world. But, you know, skin cancer in black people is actually uh, at rates that we just don't talk about. Um, and I think a lot of Black people joke around, you know, and say, oh, I've got melanin, you know, I can fight the sun. But, you know, the types of skin cancer that that this research could really combat um, are the very types of skin cancers that many black people are needlessly dying from. And we also know that oftentimes by the time black folks go to doctors, um, you know, they're they're not in the preventative stage, they're in the curing stage, and oftentimes it's too late for a cure. So I, I loved the interviews, plural, with her just because um, the reason why she's doing this is not to get rich, it's not to be famous, it's because there's a real-world connection. I think the frustrating piece is, you know, as she's trying to raise money, unfortunately for a lot of people of color, there isn't necessarily a history of donating to these types of causes. There's a history of donating to the church, but there isn't necessarily a history of donating to, say, you know, young politicians who are trying to get their start, who have a great message, who are trying to go up against a Goliath, you know, or sort of these Kickstarters. I think people of color are getting a lot better at it, but it's still not part of the quote-unquote culture. And so hopefully with more and more of these these inspiring stories, people will be motivated um, to really think about the ways in which they can, you know, give a small donation to help um, what could be a global cause. That's um, such a powerful point. I loved um, listening to Dr. Green talk through how her personal experience with her aunt and uncle completely informed the way she thought about this, that she had originally, she was originally looking at revolutionizing the way we use technology, specifically cell phones. And the experience of nursing her aunt and uncle made her think about there is there must be a better way to do this. Um, I definitely take your point, um, Beverly, that given how much money she needs, given how much of a global scourge cancer is and how much work is always done about 
quote unquote, looking for a cure. And okay, this is not a, a, a cure, but insofar as it considerably changes the experience of cancer treatment um, for those who are diagnosed with it, it is a phenomenal breakthrough in terms of cancer. And what it should be, it should be a global world-breaking stories. And frankly, she should be having money thrown at her from all of these organizations who claim they're looking for this kind of breakthrough. And so... The idea that that is not happening um, saddens my heart and it makes me think about um, the nature of the disparity and how we look at these issues. I wonder if um, she was a, uh, a white male physicist, would this be the same story? I mean, financially. Um, we have to see how that turns out. But I think that's a really, for me, that's a really important point. I think about um, October, for example, being Breast Cancer Awareness Month and how high profile a campaign it's become and how much more aware people have become as a result of those campaigns. And so therefore, a breakthrough of this kind for anybody who knows someone who they love or who or they care about who has been touched by cancer and they have walked through the pain of what it means to go through the treatment. And given how high the numbers are, that is so that is far too many people. The idea that she isn't frankly getting money thrown at her. Okay, how fast do we have to do this? What do you need? How can we expedite this but still within the safest possible way? The fact that that is not the story says something about the function of, for me, race when it comes to medicine. I love that it's um, a black woman because I think about the complicated history when it comes to medicine and specifically African-Americans. Dr. Green is African-American. And the idea of um, black women's bodies being used as receptacles to try all kinds of horrific treatment. We know that the um, modern medicine, when it comes to um, childbirthing practices, those uh, methodologies were were found as a result of the experimentation on black women's bodies. And what they endured was horrific, again, related to the previous story, because of enslavement. And so the fact that you have a young African-American woman who went to a historically black college or university, an HBCU, um, pioneering something that is just groundbreaking is so exciting to me. And the fact that it isn't being celebrated all over the world and in the medical community does remind me of the way uh, race and medicine functions within this society. Because actually, when I listen to her talk about watching her uncle's skin go from a beautiful chocolate brown to something that looked scorched in an oven, um, I think about the bodies of black people enduring different forms of violence in um, a country that has been made rich out of that violence and the beauty of the descendants of that horror coming up with ways that actually transform life and save the quality of life in ways that are profound and deeply um, meaningful. So for me, it has all kind of historical resonance. It has gender resonance. Um, and I want to see much more love towards her and what she's doing in the medical um, community. Like, what, does she, what is the journey to make this real and make this a treatment that people can actually receive? And what does she need to make that happen that should be known? And then the actions, steps taken to actually make that real. For me, that's priority. And the fact that it wouldn't be the conversation is just bizarre. It's just bizarre. And as you said, Beverly, in... Um, Uganda across the continent, but for black people across the board, getting that the numbers around getting treatment 
are horrific. But part of that is that they present later. And part of that, Christina, is it not also that there is a suspicion around medicine, medical treatment and black people just because of that complicated history that um, we spoke about? Indeed. I mean, you know, I'm always amazed at the number of uh, older African-Americans I I speak to who are very well aware of the Tuskegee experiments. Um, Even if they don't know the full story, it's it's in some ways a boogeyman myth, um, but but a very real one. I mean, my sister is also a physician, and she sees it every day. Um, but unfortunately, the Tuskegee case is the national case that we often speak of. But uh, when you talk to people who live in, you know, historically black cities or black spaces, there's always a story about the local university and or hospital and the ways in which they experimented with people. So when I was speaking to some elderly women in Baltimore um, and Johns Hopkins came up, they said growing up as kids in the inner city of Baltimore, what their parents would say is, get home before the streetlights come on. Obviously, you've heard that before, um, you know, before it gets dark. But they would then follow it with, and if you don't come home before the streetlights come on, the people from Johns Hopkins will kidnap you. And there had been stories in the community about Johns Hopkins doctors experimenting on kids. Um, And then it came out years later that they had indeed experimented on kids with lead paint um, and all types of carcinogens. um, And, you know, that wasn't a myth, right? And so thinking of Hopkins as the boogeyman um, and then later finding out that they indeed did the things that, you know, were whispered about or... Or, or sort of spoken about in, in this sort of fictitious form. And so when you go to places like Cleveland or Detroit, when they, when they would say these, these very similar things, there's a long history of, of local hospitals and doctors historically um, experimenting on black people still. And I think we're seeing this with the Flint water crisis as well. Last word to you, Beverly Nambozo. I think that this should be called a green breakthrough. Hmm. You know, Picking up from what you said, how important it is just to realize that um, the history of, of you know black people in medicine is quite contentious and complicated, and and it should be celebrated that it was done by a black woman. But also, let it be called the Dr. Green surgery, even without going into her race and gender, because the fact that she she pioneered it, and every pioneer deserves recognition. You know. Um, Back to our colonial history, many of these colonialists came and started naming our landmarks by their names, which was, which was terrible, but they did so because they felt they were pioneers. Of course, now we're renaming them back to us, something that every pioneer should, should have that right and privilege, and I think she should. And when you talk about her not having enough global recognition, I wonder if it's interesting because YouTube now, I mean, there should be even T-shirts with her names and, and caps and, and hashtags. You know what I'm saying? When I watched on the interview, I thought, wow, what a charming, intelligent, amazing woman. Very compelling story, very compelling backstory as well about her relatives and how she saw, how she, how she doctored them, how she doctored her uncle to help. He survived for like 10 years after because he decided to take on treatment, but her aunt, you know, died three months after uh, she was diagnosed. But I mean, even that story alone, those stories alone should be translated in different languages by now. Um, in Uganda, we have so many languages, and we believe in the power of translation because it reaches a wider coverage. And so 
for me, I'm saying, how far has this story been translated? If you hadn't given us information, I wouldn't have known about it. And so the translation is so limited for me. How is this being translated so that other people can understand? Just like how the way HIV AIDS was translated in so many ways, the awareness campaigns with children, with schools, you know, different languages, different structures to play, to different media. And so most people are now aware of how to prevent what causes it and how to protect themselves. But how about cancer? I mean, it comes in so many forms. It's a scary monster. So how... Why isn't this being translated in many ways under the Dr. Green, I don't know, superhero kind of comic or something? I love that. Yeah. I love that. I love that. The Green Breakthrough. That's what what it'll be called. The Green Breakthrough. Dr. Hadia (laughs) Nicole Green. Truly a leader. And this one is for the leaders. Who do I copy? Look into the mirror and is you as they look at me. Everything you like it fresh from the factory. Everything you do it in fact. Your lifestyle attract me. Parents try distract me. When I grow up, I want to be like you exactly. And as soon as I get off of this acne, there's no way anybody could have stopped me. My gravity the Wadiara and all the mannerism. Descending out of orders and man start moving busy. The locking of the corners, the streets and all the buildings. Me love you like a father. ready and me willing anything where you are talk. This line, my dominion and me have similar thoughts. I share the same opinions. Me have it say you're smart. I'm a best interest at heart. I'm following your path. Don't mind where you are what. So that's your hour. Thank you to Beverly Nambozo and Dr. Christina Greer. Thank you, ladies. Thank you, Esther. Thank you, Beverly. Thank Great you to meet very you. much. Very lovely to meet you and to hear you. Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor Mark Torres, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. The Spin, your hour of talk, where smart is always global and sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armour. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.